Hi, and welcome to Sleep On It. I'm Dr. Nana Limbakar. And I'm Yingying, and this is a podcast about sleeping your way to better health. Throughout this series, we'll explore the way sleep plays into every aspect of our health, from immunity to mental health to preventing disease. We'll also give you actionable steps to improve your sleep right away to get you on a path to a better quality of life. I'm a neurologist and clinical sleep medicine fellow at Massachusetts General Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Just a little on my background, I completed undergrad at Johns Hopkins University and then went to Columbia University for a master's of public health in health policy and management. After that, my interest in educating others about connections between the mind and body connect and sleep led me to medical school at Marshall University in West Virginia. Most recently, I completed a neurological residency training at Tufts Medical Center in Boston and now a clinical sleep medicine fellow. And starting this summer, I will be a sleep neurology attending at Boston Medical Center. Our vision for this podcast is to translate fascinating, rapidly changing research from the worlds of general medicine, neurology, and sleep for anyone interested in learning more about it. There's so much great medical knowledge out there that ends up getting lost in translation and botched by various media sources. The focus of this podcast will be evidence-based deep dives into what's best for your health from various medical findings. And today, I'm joined by my co-host, Yingying. Hey, everyone. So I'm really excited to do this with our first episode. And I actually met Nana at Hopkins as well. We met our freshman year. I've known each other for over a decade, right? Even more than that now. <laughs> but afterwards, uh, similarly, I got my master's in public health and global health at Boston University. And while doing my master's there, I fell in love with integrative medicine. So I got some experience in the Philippines and in China, specifically Beijing, Shanghai, kind of working with different doctors in both Eastern medicine and Western medicine. First started at UCLA, you know, in Los Angeles, the integrative medicine field is really booming and really huge. And I love how they do as much research in the field of this integrative medicine. So when Nana talked to me about starting this podcast to introduce all these exciting new work into the general public, I was right on board. I'm so looking forward to that, Yingying, and thank you for bringing your expertise in integrative medicine, global health, and holistic approach to medicine. I think this is going to be a great combination, and I feel like we're going to have so much to offer our audience. For the first episode, I also wanted to go beyond just the lab coat and introduce myself just as a person a little bit more. I love poetry, taking wildlife photography, cooking, and eating, and I love coffee. Yes, even as a sleep doctor, I drink copious amounts. I'll talk more in later episodes how different people process coffee differently and experience different cognitive effects from it. I identify as a physician, educator, investigator, and advocate, but I'm also a woman in science, just like Yingying. And this gives us a unique perspective through the experiences we've had as we've navigated our careers in the world of medicine and in the world of professional life. It seems despite the societal advances and technological growth that we're experiencing, it still seems to be a man's world in a lot of ways. And I'm sure that many women across spectrums of age, profession, and walks of life can relate to this. So we want this to be a series for women who are facing roadblocks, preventing them from achieving their goals. We also want you to know that there's hope and we can find strength through shared experiences and lessons learned. 
Living a happy and healthy life has never seemed so important than it does now. With the world facing unprecedented challenges every single day and today with the epidemic that we're all going through. This pandemic has really compromised the health and security of thousands of peoples, families, and communities across the globe in a way that no one's ever predicted or could see before. At the same time, we've also seen that the medical community and greater communities at large are coming together and realizing that they can help each other learn, grow, and stay safe. We realized there was no better time to start this podcast than right now, where life as we really know it has changed. And most of us have shifted to working from home, including those in the medical community as well, who started conducting virtual or telephone visits instead of the traditional face-to-face encounters that we're all used to. I know lately, speaking through my patients and talking to my colleagues across the country, that many of these changes might be a little bit scary to some people, especially when they feel like they may not have the same access to their doctor they did before. But I think hospitals and physicians across the country have slowly begun to implement telemedicine and virtual visits so that we continue to be able to help patients and people that need it. One good thing is that innovation often comes out of desperation, and it's possible that things may have changed for good, not only in the medical community, but education and other professional fields across the world. But Yingying and I will talk more about that on a later episode. We're going to be relying more and more on the virtual world to access accountable information, connect, and help each other. And we're hoping that this podcast will be one way to do that. I completely agree, Nana. That was said so beautifully. And you're right. Many things have changed. And I think more than ever, we're looking for connection. We're looking for you know, great information to help ourselves and also the ones that we love. So this is a great opportunity, I think, for both of us to contribute back, but also you know, learn things from others who are going through different things and perspectives that we may not know ourselves. Absolutely. And you hit it right on the head. I think it's a way for us to not only communicate to people, but connect to them as well. So if you guys have, as listeners want to hear about certain topics or questions, always feel free to ping us and we'll give you more information later on how to do that. Mm -hmm. So Nana, I'm so excited for our first topic for episode one. This is a topic I think that um, many people either don't really know the significance of or At this time period, it's even more relevant than ever. So today we're going to be talking about sleep sleep and immunity. immunity. Yeah. So that's right, Yingying. Um, People may not be aware, but sleep plays a big part in our immunity, which is our body's natural ability to fight off infections and other dangerous pathogens that come our way. Mm -hmm. When, When we're not getting enough sleep or we're not getting great quality of sleep, This can alter our body's mechanism and the natural chemicals that we produce that we normally need to ward off all those infections that we're almost on a day-to-day exposed to. So one thing we're going to talk about today is what you can do to modify your sleep and make sure that you're getting the right amount and quality of sleep to be able to be the healthiest you. So Nina, I know for myself, my sleep has been altered since uh, the Bay Area has now gone into uh, shelter in place or, you know, staying at home. We are trying to find a routine 
a new routine and perhaps improve our sleep. But we're also interested in making sure that our immune system is at its best and that we can optimize, you know, be able to stay healthy. So what are some ways to describe the best kind of sleep? Like in terms of hours or duration, is there a set amount of sleep that we should be focusing on? That's a great question, Yingying. And the answer is yes, you're right. There is a right amount of sleep that we should be getting. Mm -hmm. And to answer your earlier point, you're right. Not a lot of people are getting the sleep that they need to be. And in fact, in 2016, the CDC determined that nearly one third of Americans felt like they weren't getting enough sleep. And I'm sure things have been exacerbated in the current environment where um, it's hard to keep a routine and it's hard to know, well, now that I have all this time, do I sleep more? Do I sleep less? What do I do? So let's jump right in to your question and talk about what's the optimal sleep time. So research has shown that the ideal amount of sleep for most people tends to be around 78 hours. Of course, this doesn't apply to everyone. However, there's a small subset of the general population that may require less sleep and those that may require more sleep. But we're going to be talking in general for most people that seven to eight hours of sleep is the optimal time. The reason is large population-based studies have shown that have been conducted across 50,000 people or more that less than six hours of sleep was independently associated with increased cardiovascular morbidity, obesity, hypertension, stroke, and inflammatory conditions. Similarly, greater than nine hours of sleep was associated with all the same. And somehow those people that were getting about seven to eight hours of sleep were protected from the risk of all of these things. So you're saying that even those who slept more then the recommended amount had the same outcomes of people who slept less? That's crazy. I never thought of it like that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's not something that is largely known because we always think about the more sleep you get, the better. But that doesn't seem to be the case based off the evidence that we know. I guess to make sure that I got this right, so if we sleep less and we or we sleep too much, our bodies can produce chemicals that either don't help us stay healthy or perhaps um, might actually make us not as healthy, like cause inflammation that's, or such. Is that's that right? exactly right. That's exactly right. So when you sleep less than six hours or when you sleep for more than nine hours, most people generally start producing chemicals that work against them. And they produce what's called low-grade inflammation. Mm-hmm. Now, low-grade inflammation has been associated with A lot of chronic diseases such as diabetes, stroke, cardiovascular issues. And so we're actually not doing ourselves a favor when Mm. we're sleeping in or snoozing in more than nine hours. Oh, that's good to know. Especially, I think a lot of us, you know, I especially remember when I'm younger, my sleep probably was most of the time probably getting less than the uh, desired amount. So do you think we can start now and getting hopefully a proper seven, eight hours? We can improve our immune system? Or perhaps give it a boost? Absolutely. Studies have shown that you can actually repay your sleep debt, meaning make up for all that chronic loss of sleep and actually help your body boost your immune system and help it in general in warding off a lot of these chronic diseases. That being said, the best thing to do, however, is to 
make sure that you allot yourself eight hours of sleep every day and keep a really consistent sleep schedule. And sleep schedule is going to be really hard right now, especially when we know we may not have the same type of schedules that we once were used to. And so things have really drastically changed for a lot of people in terms of things being more up in the air and when they do things. I know that I have no longer an hour commute, an hour commute back from work. So that does give me more time to technically snooze in. But it's really important to make sure that we're on the right sleep schedule. And when we think about sleep timing, length, and quality of sleep, we generally tend to think of, well, what controls our sleep in our body and our brains? And there's essentially two different processes that we can identify in evidence. One of them is something called process S, which is referring to your sleep drive or your sleep pressure. Process S is how our bodies produce adenosine, which is a strong sleep promoter. So imagine waking up every day. As soon as you wake up, your process S kicks in and you start making more and more adenosine. The longer you've been awake, the more adenosine your brain will build. And by the end of the night, you've had so much adenosine built up that you're ready to go to sleep because adenosine is a strong promoter of sleep. And that's why when we drink coffee, caffeine in coffee blocks adenosine and creates this false alerting situation for us. So what happens when you drink caffeine is that it competes for the same receptors on your brain that adenosine does. Even though you're drinking caffeine, you may it, you're still building up, up adenosine. And that's why people who have pull all-nighters and drink a lot of caffeine to stay awake will probably do so. But at some point when the caffeine wears off, they find that they're about to crash. And the reason is because all caffeine did was compete for the same receptors. But when you no longer have caffeine there, adenosine, the amount of adenosine in your, in your brain may have doubled at this point. And that's why you feel this strong sensation to crash or fall asleep. Oh, that's so interesting. So I guess in some sense, because we have such strong coffee culture on both the East Coast and the West Coast, especially here in San Francisco, I do notice that some people, they literally cannot function unless they have a cup of coffee in the morning. So oh, yeah. I think that's you know, big, very relevant to our normal sleep patterns. It is. And I, I think it's okay to drink coffee and caffeine in the morning and we all need it. And I personally have one to two cups in the morning myself. But the trick is to make sure you're not drinking coffee, coffee or other forms of caffeine late into the day. Because the more you drink, the longer it stays in your system. And so it can affect you if you drink a coffee or a tea or soda at 4 p.m. You may not be able to experience getting to sleep fast as you normally would without it. Is there specific times in which we should start falling asleep? Or what's a good guideline in knowing when to start going to sleep and when to that, wake up? That is an excellent question, Yingying. And what you've opened up is a process called circadian rhythm or your body's own internal clock. Now, I told you earlier that there were two processes that affected your sleep. Process mm -hmm. as we already talked about. But process C is the second mechanism which controls our sleep, and that's referring to our circadian clock. So you can think about the circadian clock as an inherited genetic tendency that determines when we secrete melatonin 
and thus when we're most likely to fall asleep. Now, everyone's circadian clock is like your own fingerprint. Now, everyone has an, a unique tendency to fall asleep at a different time. Most people like to fall asleep or want to fall asleep, whether it's based off societal needs or work needs, where we fall asleep when it's dark outside and stay awake when it's light outside. And what that refers to is we like to sync our internal clock with the day and night cycle of the external clock. However, this is not always the case for a lot of people based off their own internal circadian rhythm or fingerprint for when they want to fall asleep. So not everyone sleeps or naturally falls asleep or wakes up at the same, not same time, but the general time that we're recommended to sleep at like 10 p.m.? Absolutely. That's that's correct. So in fact, a small portion of the population are what we call advanced sleepers, where they may like to go to bed around 5 or 6 p.m. and wake up around 2 or 3 a.m. And they generally refer to themselves as morning larks, where they like getting up early, doing things in the morning, and they tend to crash earlier in the day or evening. And another small subset of the population are what we call delayed sleepers. Delayed sleepers like to fall asleep much later into the evening or night, maybe around 1, 2, 3 a.m., and wake up a little bit later into the day, like 12, 1, 2 p.m., and there's there's nothing wrong with either type of sleepers. I love that because um, many people might feel a little bit guilty, you know, if they're dating someone and that person already wants to go to bed and or, you know, maybe you live with family who already wants to go to bed and you're not feeling that tired. So with that knowledge, you're probably saving a lot of relationships, Nina. <laughs> that, that is a great not observation. My it's my circadian <laughs> rhythm. <laughs> exactly. It's not it's not something you can control it's actually controlled by your genes and your unique fingerprint so don't feel bad if you can't fall asleep when everyone else does because it's unique to you and the idea is that when you follow your own body's internal circadian rhythm you're going to experience the most refreshing sleep rather than sleeping at different times and so you're making sure that you're going to be normally cycling through all those important stages of sleep that are restorative that you may not do if you sleep at odd hours of the day. I love it. I love that we're removing like a sense of pressure or, or guilt associated with our sleep because you're right. Sleep should be the time that we reward ourselves to rest and kind of recharge and prepare for the next day. So are there any other methods that you recommend for preparing ourselves to go to sleep? Um, like any tips or advice you're for getting ready to get the best sleep you can? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of things that we can do to make sure that we're relaxed enough and get a deeper sleep. And some of the things that we know that really impact when we go to sleep and the quality of our sleep is light. So light can either be good for your sleep and at the same time, if exposed to different type of lights at the wrong time, it can actually prevent you from going to sleep. So there's two ways you can actually use light to help you fall asleep in a deeper fashion. One of those ways is when you wake up in the morning, the best thing you can do to alert your brain that it's awake time and that you're ready to go is to look outside and enjoy the sunshine, look 
directly outward, not into the sun. You still have to be very careful about <laughs> looking into the sun because that can be uh, very harmful to your eyes. But generally, just look outside, enjoy the great weather and the view, and do this for about 20 to 30 minutes so that while you're either having coffee or reading um, a book or whatever your morning routine entails. For me, it's definitely having that cup of coffee and looking outside really just resets me and um, is actually kind of meditative in a way. And what this actually does is it will, in fact, help you fall asleep better the following night. Oh, is that because um, it does something with the type of light that is being shown or does it really depend on what light? It does depend on what light. And generally, um, sunlight has a lot of the, the rays that you need to alert your brain that it's awake. Because what we want to do is you'll sleep better when you really make a distinction between when your brain is awake and when your brain is asleep. So what we want to do is train our brain to be wide awake when it's supposed to be and then sleep when it's supposed to be. So I can tell you even on cloudy days where the sun doesn't mm -hmm. seem very bright or strong is still enough light coming from there to signal our brains that it's awake. But what about all the like artificial light that we're exposed to, you know, with all the screens that are surrounding us and I know especially at night, um, it's hard to get away from light, certain light. So is there something that we should be aware of in that way? Absolutely. You brought up a really good point in modern age and society right now, especially probably now more than ever, we're um, staring at our computer screens, TV screens, phone screens, iPad, whatever it is, we are being exposed to artificial light. And studies have shown that these artificial lights have a lot of what's called green blue wave light properties to them that in fact delay and fragment our sleep. So the best thing that we can do for our sleep is to actually avoid these for up to two hours and at the very least, at least an hour before going to bed. Because if, if we're looking at these things right before bed, we're actually tricking our brain into thinking it's awake rather than asleep. And that's the opposite of what we want to do. Man, that is probably the trickiest uh, behavioral change that I personally will need to work on because I know I've developed the habit of bringing my phone to bed and uh, I feel I need to work on making sure I don't bring my phone to bed because I know the moment that I get into bed, I get into this mindset of, you know, checking YouTube, checking my socials and I can tell that my brain isn't exactly happy with me because as I'm physically trying to fall asleep, my mind starts racing and I think that's an issue a lot of my friends and I have is that our body is tired, like our eyes are trying to close, but we can't shut our brains off. So it must be related to a lot of those things that we're talking about in terms of light and training our brains. Yeah, that is so true. And you're describing exactly what I think most of our experiencing right now. And um, there is an option, in fact, for those of us that have to do work on our phones or computers to, um, it depends on your device, but most devices now, I think, have a night shift filter on them. And you can, at the very least, put those on, but they're not 100% perfect. And still, I would recommend avoiding those completely for about an hour before bed. Um, but you're right. You brought up one really, really interesting thing that I want to touch on, which is your eyes, uh, you know, you're sleeping when your eyelids are getting heavy and that you it's hard to keep them 
open. And that's your body sending you a very strong signal that it's time to go to sleep. And one thing that I always like to stress to patients or family members or friends or really anyone that I talk to, because um, the idea that sleep is like a physiological function, like any other bodily function, like having to go to the bathroom, you know, when your body sends you the signal that you have to go to the bathroom, you can't just make it up or make yourself go. And the same thing is with sleep. You can't trick your body into trying to go to sleep when you're not feeling those sensations, like you mentioned, of your eyelids feeling heavy or your head nodding off. And that's why it's so important to listen to your own body's internal rhythm or its circadian system when it's sending you those signals that you're it's time to go to sleep. So the best thing you can do is when you feel sleepy, go to bed. Alternatively, if you're not sleepy, you shouldn't go to bed because just being in bed won't help you fall asleep. And that's another myth that I think is out there that the longer you stay in bed, the more sleep you'll get. And that's absolutely the opposite of what we know in the sleep community is that what you really need to do is only go to bed when you're sleepy. And when you're awake in the morning, the best thing to do is just get out of bed and wake up rather than trying to see if you can extend your sleep for that extra hour or two hours just because you have the time to do so. Oh, that's so interesting. I never thought of it like that. You know, in many ways, that kind of reminds me of like food, like diet, like when should you have breakfast? When should you have dinner? Or, you know, the timing wise, like what works for you? Is there some link between sleep and maybe the time for dinner? Absolutely. That is also a really, really great point that you brought up and something we can certainly modify too. The same way that our circadian clock or our biological clock controls when we want to go to sleep, the biological clock also controls other signals in our body as well. We're finding that um, our central clock, which is the clock in our brain, sends signals to our heart, to our endocrine system, to our blood vessels, and different times of the day, we secrete different hormones. And so there is an ideal time to eat and to exercise that would affect when we go to sleep. For instance, one of the common things people do that probably are preventing them from going to sleep at their desired time is eating a late dinner. So when you eat a dinner past eight o'clock or nine o'clock and your goal for bedtime is 10, you may not fall asleep right away. And the reason is because when you eat, you're, te- you're te- telling your body or sending signals that, hey, you've just fed me. It's a high energy state and it's time to burn off those and it's not time to go to sleep. And so one of the common things that I end up recommending is making sure you eat earlier and early enough so that dinner is not working against you. So I generally say if you want to go to bed at 10, eat dinner around six or seven. I feel like everything my parents told me as a kid is being proven right right now. Because I know and there's this Chinese saying that you're supposed to eat the most in the morning, you know, a balanced medium one in, in the afternoon for lunch and then the least at night for dinner. So, you know, now that I'm older, I have found that naturally that is what I gravitate towards. I want a lighter dinner because then it helps me fall asleep better and I have just feel better when I wake up in the morning and instantly I want a great breakfast. So I guess in a sense, those are very good healthy habits to incorporate. Yeah. And your parents were right. And I guess there's a lot of 
fact behind what our parents told us. And um, I think that, you know, this is an easy, it, it, it can often be an easy thing to modify to improve our sleep. And I guess once we, we, you wouldn't know until you started doing it, whether you've experienced all the beneficial effects of it. And you also mentioned exercise because, you know, I'm also trying to incorporate good daily exercise, especially now that I'm at home. So um, is that really dependent on the person as well? Or what does exercise do perhaps to help me sleep? Because I do find that when I exercise that day, I sleep better. Yeah, that is a great point, Ying Ying. Um, we can use exercise to actually help us fall asleep in a deeper or better state. And yes, I think generally for most people, exercising in the morning is going to make sure that you're going to fall asleep better and probably faster than you would without exercising at all. What happens when you exercise too late in the evening or right before bedtime is that exercise is sending a signal to our body and brains that it's a sort of high energy state. It produces hormones that um, are responsible for activating our heart rate, activating our blood pressure. So it puts us in this sort of high demand state. And that is the opposite of what we want to do before bedtime, where we're trying to induce a relaxing state, where sleep is supposed to be a restorative state where our blood pressure dips, our heart rate dips, and it's a very restful time for us and a, a, and a way for your body to really reset. And so the ideal time to exercise would be in the early morning when you wake up or sometime mid-afternoon, but definitely not close to before going to bed. Yes, because recently I've been trying to get into meditation as a way to kind of like a mind-body exercise before bed, and I've been really enjoying them. I think it's a way for me to feel like I'm ramping down from my day. That's great that you do that, Yingying, and I think that is going to be so helpful for your sleep and also, I think, for a lot of people. And I often tend to recommend different meditation or breathing exercises before bed. And the reason is because when you do those, essentially what you're doing is you are uh, telling your brain waves to slow down and focus on imperative things like breathing, like muscle relaxation. The more relaxed your muscles are, it's going to be much easier to fall asleep. And the deeper and longer your breathing gets is going to also help induce sleep. And it what it also does is distract our minds from having racing thoughts or worry or stress about other things that are going on right now. Because what happens when your mind is racing or you're having thoughts or you're having subconscious feelings is that your brain is firing rapidly. When it is firing rapidly, it's very hard to achieve sleep because by definition, sleep occurs when your brain waves really slow down into deep rolling ocean waves. And research has shown that people who meditate get a lot of the same benefits as they do from sleep. And so if we incorporate more meditation into our daily routine, not only will it help us get to sleep faster, but we may already be getting a lot of the benefits from meditation as we do from sleep. So it sounds like I'm on the right track. And those are such good tips I'm going to try to incorporate into my sleep routine. How about we end with sharing each other's like sleep routine right now? Maybe that'll be a cool way to get some new ideas. Yeah, totally. So my sleep routine lately with everything going on is about two hours before I like to get into bed. So I usually like to get into bed about 9 30 or 10 
what I'll do is two hours, I'll shut off all the TV, I'll shut off the uh, computer screen and try not to look on my phone either. But if I do, I always make sure that it's on night shift mode. Uh, most of the time it's off. Um, but then what I'll do is I like to actually sip a chamomile tea before bed. I don't know about any scientific basis for chamomile, but I know that it does relax me and it makes me feel really calm and sort of the warm, soothing effects of the hot tea also just help relax my muscles and my body. Um, I do know that I do know when I do that, I just feel just more at tune and in sync with uh, the nighttime. And after I've had my chamomile tea, I'll often um, pick up a book. Um, and one of my favorite books, relaxing and just sort of sit by very dim light or have a lamp a little bit, you know, at least five or five to 10 feet away from me so that I'm not being exposed to harsh, bright lights before bed, but I can see, uh, I can see well enough to read a book. And as I read that book, I start feeling my eyes feeling heavy, my eyelids heavy, uh, my eyelids about to close. And that's when I know that it's time for me to head to the bed. Before I certainly won't get to bed if I'm not feeling that sensation because I know that often if I head to bed before I feel sleepy, chances are I won't fall asleep. I do something similar. I, I start about an hour before I naturally start uh, going to sleep. And so that's generally around like maybe 9.30, 10 p.m. Um, what I like to do, which I kind of picked up from my Asian parents as well and my time in China, is if I've had time, I like to soak my feet in uh, really, really warm water. You know, not mm. so hot that it burns you. And I'll add a little Epsom salt or maybe some like essential oils. And I'll put my feet in and let it soak for, you know, um, as long as I feel comfortable. And I actually used to do this a lot when I was in Los Angeles. Um, if I wanted to go to bed, I would go to one of the uh, foot massage places that were really like, you know, affordable and very fun with my friends and they would like massage our feet. But similarly, they would soak our feet in really warm water. And I tell you, like when you get home, you're just ready to go to bed. So I'll usually do that in the comfort of my own room. I you know I feel like I'm pampering myself, maybe put on a face mask. But after that, you know, I, I do my skincare routine. I drink some water just before bed and then I just get comfortable and I feel very cozy. And then if I really need some extra help, sometimes I'll play some uh, some sounds, some soothing sounds, and then it lets me go to bed. That sounds so relaxing. Honestly, I feel relaxed just listening to that routine. <laughs> and I can't imagine if I actually... I can picture it. Yeah. And I need to take a page from your book. And I would love to try soaking my feet. I think that would feel so fabulous and relaxing. Um, thanks for that tip, Yingying. I'm definitely going to try that. Um, yeah, especially for folks who might have cold feet a lot, you know, like they always feel like their feet are so cold that it doesn't allow them to go to bed early. So they have to wear socks. Try soaking your feet in warm water and see if that will help you make that issue a little bit easier. And easy to do. <laughs> it's always easy to have access to hot water, hopefully. So yes, exactly. Well, I'm so happy we did this first episode. I personally feel like I learned so much from you. Thank you, Nana, Dr. Nana, my awesome friend. I'm so excited for all the other topics that we'll get to touch on in future episodes too. Oh, and Yingying, I love your tips and tricks. And I just um, am so excited to learn more about your practices from your Eastern background and from your family practices. And I think these, this is just so exciting because I know we have a lot we want to talk about. Um, I know I want to learn about your recent 
uh, trip to China where you engaged in a lot of healthy um, lifestyle, which has been so impressive. So I'd love to hear more that about that in a future episode. Yes, I am really excited to share that and definitely hear your uh, insights into my journey as well and your journey and finding the great links and connections that we can share with others and perhaps it'll resonate with a lot of people too. If you have any other topics that you'll like to for us to do or share with us some of your great perspectives or stories, email us at sleeponitpod. That's Sleep on it, P-O-D, at gmail.com. So I guess until next time. Sleep on it. Sleep on it. Bye, everyone. Bye.